Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick. This is episode number 210 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. It's also brought to you in part by Acoustic Disc, home of almost all of David Grisman's incredible work, and his incredible podcast, Acoustic Encounters, with himself and Danny Barnes. So thank you so much to them both. How's everybody doing? I just launched today something I've been wanting to do on my Patreon for a long time. I'm calling it the 365 Project. You might have caught the trailer that I posted earlier, uh, but if not, essentially it's based on the 10 minutes a day. If you only had 10 minutes a day to work on something, what would you work on? Well, how about licks? And how about if those licks actually were licks that eventually came together to form a solo? And Or if not, you could just use those licks as standalone. Anyway, it's now available at the Patreon uh, $4 and below, you get the PDF book with six or five tunes in there. Uh, $8 and above, you get the tunes and the MP3s that I recorded at 50 or 60% with a metronome slowed down each lick. And if you are $10 and above, which I just got two new ones uh, this past week, you get all that and the solos, which are slowed down in, in their entirety. Anyhow, I just want to thank all the people who have signed up for the Patreon, by the way, and all my patrons so tough to keep up with that, but uh, 91 of those licks recorded and typed out, and I'm already up to about 160 for book number two, which will be coming out. There'll be four books, uh, which will have 365 licks, a lick a day. So there you go. My guest this week, John Keith. What a player. There are some incredible Monroe stories in here. He's a super nice guy. Uh, unbelievable player unbelievable player so it was a pleasure to talk to him i met him at the monroe mandolin camp which is probably going to be doing their enrollment anytime soon so be sure to head over to their website and make sure you follow along so you don't miss out on registration and campers or registration and teachers i should say i'm not sure who the teachers are this year but uh no doubt they're going to be incredible they always are um let's get into the sponsors real quick and then we'll get into this episode Peghead Nation with Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You can learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. Who do you ask for mandolin? How about Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibus, Chad Manning, Ian Curry, all the way from beginner to advanced jazz in Shoro. They have got it all. Courses include high quality multi angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab play along tracks, and Plenty of tunes and songs to play. The best part? Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins. Let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com or download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Tone Slab Picks, I'm a proud endorser of the Tone Slab Picks. I've got my own signature model. I love it. Two pointy ends, one rounded end. Made to my specifications with the logo. You can get all that to yourself. Just go to toneslabs.com and order yourself a slab of tone today. Frank and David are great to work with, and they will make sure you get the pick you want to make yourself play and sound better. And also, speaking of helping yourself sound better, how about String Joy Strings? Also a very proud new endorsee for their mandolin strings. I absolutely love them. The minute I put them on, they blew me away. I play a lot, so I've always wanted to like coated strings. I've never liked coated strings until I got the Foxwoods from Stringjoy. Uh, now they they just they're they're incredible sounding, uh, woody and full toned, and they feel good. They don't feel like that weird 
slickness that you get on some of those sets of coated strings. I mean, some people like that, but I did not. So I love them. Stringjoy strings, and you can get 10% off your order today. Just go to stringjoy.com. Use the promo code mandolinbeer, all one word, at checkout. 10% off. Can't beat it. The fine folks at Pava Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player in Austin, Texas. Thank you, Pava Mandolins and elderly instruments that carry Pava Mandolins and Northfield Mandolins. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. From the experienced to beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. They're in their 51st year. They're family-owned and operated. They are award-winning and some of the nicest people I know. They ship worldwide. And you can visit them anytime at elderly.com. All right, everybody, let's get into this episode with John Keith. Hope everybody has a great week. Thanks for listening. Cheers, everybody. Let me be a soda dog. Let me be a soda dog. I won't be a man at all. Let me be a soda dog. My pleasure to welcome to the podcast, John Keith. John, how's it going? Doing real well. How about you? Doing good, man. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. You said um, you are a uh, preacher by trade, and you said when I when I message you, you're like, I have an open schedule, but you know how that can go. It can change at any minute, minute being a preacher, oh, yeah. so I, I appreciate you uh, being able to carve this out today. Oh, Absolutely. So I met you. One of the first things um, when I when we started this is talking is you wanted to make sure we mentioned the Monroe Camp, which was an awesome time last year, which is where wow, I met you. And um, yeah, so first off, what I know you want to say a few things about the Monroe Camp. So please, let's get those right at the right at the top of this podcast. Yeah, well, I mean, it was uh, I, I knew they had something like this at IBMA. I've never actually been to IBMA. <laughs> Um, but, uh, I knew they had this thing. And then, uh, uh, when they decided to go a different direction, a lot of people were really disappointed because they just, they just love that thing so much. And, uh, actually a good friend of mine, uh, John Gardensky, the mandolin player, and he suggested Mike and Heidi just, Hey, why don't you guys do it? So, uh, they took the bull with the horns and, and that's what they did. I was actually got to teach at the first one and it was just it was just mandolins then and uh, but uh, i've been back i don't know five or six times since and uh, they've got a lot of people they want to get uh, but uh, yeah last year was a great time at uh, at abingdon at the uh, higher education center and they're having it again this year at the same place in abingdon virginia at the uh, higher education center there in abington from september 3rd to the 8th and I know Heidi is, uh, she hasn't, it hasn't officially, enrollment hasn't officially dropped yet, but I know she's working hard on it. She always puts on a great camp and uh, she goes above and beyond to try to get things. And of course, Mike Compton, I don't know what else you can say. I mean, the guy is, he's our fearless leader. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for but, sure. Uh, it's going to be a big time, and I know they're going to have, you know, mandolin, banjo, fiddle, guitar, bass tracks, and vocal tracks, and probably, uh, knowing Heidi and Mike, there's going to be some surprises involved, so um, I've never heard anybody go away disappointed, so. 
I, I don't know how you could. And actually, even yeah. when I aired the uh, the live episode, one of the things I mentioned at the beginning was like, if this is if this is the type of uh, mandolin style that you love, there is no better place. I mean, it's oh, it's it's the best teachers in the style, along with just a bunch of people who have the exact same interest as you. Yeah, it's incredible. It, yeah, it's kind of a a specialized field i guess because it's it's pretty much i mean it's it's Mon all monroe all the time <laughs> yeah yeah and i'll tell you what and there is a lot of work put into it i i i don't know how heidi pulls off all that stuff it's uh it blows my mind blood sweat and tears yeah yeah exactly <laughs> well that's so that's how i discovered your playing and i i am 100 percent honest when i say this the first time I heard you play. I was in a room with Paul Duff, and Will Kimball talking, and I just heard the most incredible mandolin tone and playing coming from down the hallway. I'm like, who is that? And <laughs> I had to pull, I walk, walking down my head and I came back in and both Paul and Will went, was it John Keith? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh. And uh. every time... Every time you were teaching a class or you were playing somewhere in a room, that it, it grabbed me like by the heartstrings, man. It just touched something deep inside me. And I'm like, I have to have you on the podcast sometime and talk to you about your playing. Well, thank you so much. Those are very kind words. And uh, I, I love it. I mean, it's uh, I don't get to do it as much as I as I used to, but uh, I, I don't love it any less. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I've always tone is always one of the things I've really tried to pay attention to. Um, I figure if you're going to play any note, you want it to sound good. There's, I think if you're, if you play a notes and you don't care how they sound, I think you're kind of wasting your time. And I think that's something that I think people mistake about Monroe style playing. I think sometimes the way they approach it is more hard and fast as opposed to what you were pulling out of your mandolin, which is just, it was fast and beautiful tone and i think people forget about the tone portion of that monroe stuff yeah he uh and, and, and again monroe was so kind of an kind of an enigma in a way because um he just i mean he he didn't have of course higher education so it he was limited in you know he couldn't express it in in these eight syllable words like a lot of people do Monroe would always just explain it in simple tones and or simple terms. And, and, and you could tell what he was thinking about, uh, you know, the, he, he would devise these, if I understand it, he, he would devise, you know, he would name a tune and, and that's what it sounded like to him. And, and so, and, and it didn't make sense to anybody else, but he <laughs> knew, he knew what it, one he he knew what he wanted and he knew you know that that he played the sound that in his mind described the the uh the tune i mean uh, probably like uh, frog on a lily pad Yeah, 
that first little lick can see there, it kind of, uh, you know, kind of a, a frog croaking in a pond or something, you know, but it, it, it registered with him, whether, you know, with, with anybody else or not. But uh, the tones were just, uh, and again, I don't know how conscious he was of, you know, playing good tone. I think that was just something that was taken for granted with him. It was just the notes have to sound right. And it's not something he thought of. It was just something that was inborn uh, in his, you know, when he started playing music, it was just, hey, it's got to sound a certain way. And it's, it's like breathing, you know, it's just something you do. You know, it was interesting during that Monroe camp. One of the things I was really looking forward to was hearing different players play Monroe because nobody sounds, you know, nobody sounds like Monroe exactly, obviously, but nobody right. sounds like Compton playing Monroe. Nobody sounds like Reichman playing Monroe and nobody sounds like you or Jeff playing Monroe. And, yeah. you know, so how how do you when when you're listening to Monroe and, and trying to make it sound you know, like your version of Monroe, like how are you hearing it? How are you transferring that to the instrument in your head? Well, that's, I don't know. Maybe um, it's just a matter of uh, you put yourself as best you can the way you think Monroe was putting it. Um I remember when I was a kid, I, before I started playing mandolin, I, was, I wanted to sound, you know, I wanted my, I wanted my rhythm to sound like Lester flat, except I did it with a flat pick. And, uh, and that was before we got to see all these videos and stuff. So <laughs> and it was not that I like to look at myself, but I've found out that if you sit in front of a mirror, that sound bounces back to you better. So uh, my mom always accused me of, primping in front of the mirror when I was actually just sitting there <laughs> playing my guitar because I could hear the sound coming back better. And, uh, but then I think I got to watch and, you know, I'd listen and, and I would almost, I would look at my right hand to see what it looked like when I made certain sounds. And I don't know, I just, I had my own uh, methodology, I guess. And then I suppose everybody develops this one where, and I still do the mirror thing with the mandolin and, uh, because I guess, again, the sound just pops back to me so so much better. And I've heard of guys that would sit in the bathroom and play because of the acoustics and, and or, you know, they would go up against a, a, a like a, a wooden wall in a cabin or something because of the way the sound bounced back. But I would listen to Monroe and I would try, I just tried every way I could to make, to match what he was doing, uh, note wise and as close as I could tonally. Um, how old were you when you first started getting, when you first got a mandolin? Oh, I was as a junior in high school, I was probably 16 or 17. And so obviously you were already, you were mentioning playing, you want to play like Lester flat. So I'm assuming that you listened to bluegrass then before you got the mandolin. Oh yeah. Yeah. I started playing guitar when I was nine. That would have been about the late seventies. And then uh, I got a banjo later on, and, and, and then I eventually wanted a mandolin. So I think I was a junior in high school. What was it? Was it Monroe for you for the mandolin? Is that why you wanted one? Or was it like, well, I can play banjo and guitar? Yeah, well, it was Monroe captivated me. It was just uh, nobody was nobody played like him. I mean, and especially at that time, I mean, and, and I'm not discrediting anybody, but I mean, everybody was hot on, you know, the bluegrass albums were, 
you know, they were, that was the gold standard of the, of the contemporary period there. And, and, uh, and I love Doyle's playing, but I, everybody was trying to play like Doyle or everybody was trying to play like Jimmy Goodrow. And, uh, and I love those guys playing, but I said, nobody's playing like Monroe. I'm going to do that. And then, uh, so I got, you know, I got that bluegrass time album. That was, oh man, that was, that just, that just solidified it. And, Where we uh, used to walk, I walk alone with an aching heart because my love is gone blue tonight, blue as I can be. I wore that thing out. In fact, I had to buy another copy of it. <laughs> really, yeah, I believe absolutely. it. And uh, uh, there's just the sounds on that. And then I got—I think the next album I got was uh, the High Lonesome Sound that had "Letter from a Darling." And stuff and that just that 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 edge i mean some music i suppose sounds best when it's polished and slick and technical and everything but uh boy i don't think bluegrass ought to sound mechanical at all it it, to me it's got to have an edge and uh and and maybe some people don't like the the extreme edge that monroe has or had but uh uh, I love it. Oh man, me too. And there is a fine there, there's a fine line in the middle. You know what I mean? But oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a difference between playing playing with an edge and and then just playing sloppy or bad. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then and then there's the alternate to that, which is punch one note per solo. You know, and until you know it's perfect to a grid and a click track, and the harmonies are you know, fine tuned that, that doesn't do it for me. You know, it's good. Yeah. It's just sanitized. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I like, uh, I like those old Monroe albums and, uh, I mean, uh, it's just hard to beat to me. And I mean, for, for my ear anyway, I mean, I'm not, you know, music is all, it's all a subjective taste and, uh, I don't know how anybody could be objective and say, well, this guy is a better musician. They're all, they're all good in their own way. It's just whatever you prefer. So, when were you learning these on? Then were they vinyl? Was that what you were getting at that time? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that how you were learning the tr- the tunes? Then just like were you slowing it down, or were you just like listening, yeah. stopping, putting I, the needle down? Yeah, the, doing that. I actually made a break for a record player. I, I drilled a hole through the top of it and put a wing nut on it. When made a just took a little piece of wood and made a. Just I would run it over against the turntable and tighten the wing nut down so the record played slow. What? Or, oh, that's yeah, amazing. Record, record player motors don't last long doing that, though. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's the first I've ever heard of that. That's in that's that's like genius. 
Well, it was. Well, I mean, poor people got poor ways. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Did you were you working with any teachers at that time too, or are you completely self-taught? No, it was totally self-taught. I mean, there there weren't many mandolin players in my area, and, and the ones that were, they were working or had families, and and I would go to bluegrass festivals. And uh, I just uh, I stand around in the back of a jam session where I could see a mandolin player and watch him. Um, my fourth grade school teacher taught me the first some first chords on a guitar, and uh, she would bring her guitar to school all the time, and or on Fridays and play for us. And then a couple of boys expressed some interest, and so she made these little booklets with an old mimeograph machine, that old purple ink, and and. Uh, he made these little booklets for us. So we learned some songs and some chords. And uh, I think about all of them eventually quit. I'm about the only one that I know of that really stuck with it. And then I just, you know, went from there. But uh, as far as I've never had any mandolin lessons. Uh, 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 one of the older guys that I, that I jammed with, he loaned me an old, I think it was a Goya mandolin and, and I, I had it for six months or so, and then Dad bought me a, a man, a, an Alvarez, and uh, I played it for a while, and then I, he, I upgraded to one that a, a, a banjo guy actually built, a guy named Dick Powell from St. Mary's, West Virginia, built a Stu Mac kit, and I played it for a long time, and then I bought that Buckeye, uh, number two off of Pete Hart, and then I played it for... 30 some years and I'm still playing it some, but, uh, I just recently, well, I got that duff that weekend we were down there at Monroe camp last year. Oh yeah. What a beauty too. It's a dandy. Oh yeah. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. I, that was uh that was a, a bonus of, of, uh, being at that camp too, is to get to see somebody take ownership of a new instrument like that. Oh yeah. It was, it was a thrill. So how did you start finding people to uh, pick with? Was, were you finding people like right in the area there? Or were you just finding people? Well, I, when I started playing guitar, I wanted to play rock and roll. I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to be Gene Simmons. I wanted to take his place in church when he retired. Of course, I'd have still been waiting because they're still at it, I think. <laughs> but, oh, man, uh, that's great. And then, of course, my dad hated it. He liked, uh, he liked country music. He liked Hank Williams and, uh, and that that sort of thing and mom she was more into like the soda jerk music from the 50s and 60s and and so i started playing rock and roll and dad said well you know if you get good on guitar uh you know we'll buy you a better one and all this and so he he, he bought me a fender and he he made a deal with me he said now for every rock and roll song you learn you gotta learn two country songs <laughs> and his favorite song was Under the Double Eagle. He heard it on a jukebox down in Texas when he's in the Air Force. So he went out, he started buying me records, uh, every version of Under the Double Eagle he could find because he wanted he wanted me to play everything about it. 
And, uh, and then I got me listening to country music a little bit. And then my cousin and some of his buddies were playing one night at a little schoolhouse or across the river in West Virginia at the Eureka community building right below St. Mary's. So I didn't want to go. He said, I said, what kind of music they play? They said, bluegrass. Oh, I don't want to go listen to that wishboard accordion and, <laughs> and all that. Junk. Right. right. Uh, but they drugged me there. I mean, I went screaming and, uh, well, I, so I was watching my cousin. He had a D28. I didn't know what a Martin D28 was, but that's what it ended up being. I was watching him, you know, and I'm sitting there pouting. And I could say, well, I know that chord. I can play that. Well, I know that chord. That's no big deal and all this stuff. Well, he, he decides to sit down for a while, and he hands me that guitar. And so I'm sitting there on the front row playing it a little bit, and I'm starting to really kind of enjoy it. And I, and I looked over at Dad, and he's kind of laughing at me. So then I started acting like I was mad again because, <laughs> you know, I didn't want him to one-up me. But So I ended up getting up and playing along with him, just kind of following along. And, man, I fell in love with it. That was probably 79 or 80, somewhere along in there. So that's where I – then I went out and started buying all those Gusto Sampler bluegrass, you know, 30 greatest bluegrass hits and 20 bluegrass instrumentals and – you know, and they all had salty dogs uh, and, <laughs> and, and, and ranch rangers and old rattler and stuff on them. And so I learned to sing Rocky Top. And the next time they got together at this little show or jam session, I sang Rocky Top in C at that time. And uh, like Bobby did, man, I just, yeah, it started something that I still never quit yet. So I. I can still sing it in C. I just have to drop an octave. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Did you ever get to see uh, Monroe live? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What was that like the yeah. first time? Oh, man. I was crying. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah. Where, where was it at? Frontier Ranch, Columbus, Ohio. And it was, uh, that's, well, it was Daryl Atkins run it then. And, uh, that's where I saw Monroe the first time. It's bluegrass album band, and I mean, that's where I saw all the biggies. But uh, yeah, getting to see him, and uh, I got my picture made with him, and uh, I've still got a copy of it somewhere. I've got my blue jeans and a white t-shirt and a red man chewing the back of hat and <laughs> shaking his hand. Yeah, I remember he come he come in in that big blue bus that had uh, had unicorns on the side of it, and said Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys. Oh, it was, yeah, it was just, it was great. I mean, I was, that was the most powerful figure I'd ever stood in front of, probably other than my dad. So. Uh, do you have like a Goodman Rose story from meeting him? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> later on, um, when I was with the Goins brothers, I got to be around him a good bit. And uh, we had, uh, we'd, driven them all night or i didn't drive john mcneely was the driver then before i started driving the bus any but uh, we we landed at the, his festival in bean blossom and you know and bill had been around me before so i was i was a couple inches taller than bill but bill had this pride thing where he liked to pull you off balance <laughs> you know if he could pull a, if he could pull a big man off balance well then he won you know that was just his mindset so this is i don't know probably 92 93 somewhere along in there and so we pull into bean blossom and bill meets us at the gate 
and I'd been riding shotgun. So I was standing in, in the front there in the, in the, in the well where you, where you get up in the bus and, uh, opened the bus door and Bill, <laughs> I knew what was coming, but Bill reached his hand. So he's standing on the ground and I'm on the first step of the bus. And so I'm, and I'm now like a foot and a half or two taller than him. And he reaches up his hand and grabs me and pulls me off the bus. Well, and so doing, he pulled me on top of it. <laughs> And so it was. It became my job then to keep Mister Monroe from falling down, because I said, you know, I can see the headlines now. Melvin Gorn's mandolin player flattens father of bluegrass. <laughs> and that was the last thing I or Melvin needed. <laughs> so he didn't go down. I, I nearly did, but that was a scared. And then he did the same thing to me at the backstage at the Opry one time. There's there's blue velour gates they've got up you know to separate the the stage from the backstage area melvin's standing there talking to him and, and bill hollers for me to come over and he reaches out shakes my hand and again i know it's coming but he, he was a little quicker and, and he yanked me and i about knocked one of those things over so i about got thrown out of the opry we talked about <laughs> <of Bill>, so. <laughs> oh that's a classic oh it, it was good stuff oh yeah yeah how tall are you you're you're you are a tall guy I about six four. Yeah. Oh wow. No. Get that. Let's get that big sweet tone out of that mandolin too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's. Uh, I feel I love doing it. So, um, how did you join with the uh, Goins Brothers and Melvin Goins? Uh, well, I was playing a band uh, with a couple other brothers, a uh, local band, and uh, we were starting to get a lot of bookings and stuff, and. I'd just been out of, I went to technical college and I'd just, uh, I'd been laid off for a while from the job. I was doing HVAC work and I'd been laid off for a while. In fact, uh, my unemployment was getting ready to run out. And so Melvin and them were playing at a local bluegrass festival, Poston Lake. And uh, John McNeely, who was the guitar player with the Goins Brothers at the time, lead guitar player, uh, he came to me and he said, hey, he said, uh, the mountain player, Rick, turned his notice in you ought to talk to melvin because i'd been jamming with him and and and, and the, the late gerald evans and they kind of encouraged me to go talk to melvin and so uh melvin for some reason stayed there that night and i went down the next morning and talked to him and uh, i told him hey i'm a mandolin player i said gerald and uh, johnny told me to come talk to you I said rick was putting his notice in and i'd like to give it a shot and he took my phone number and uh, he said, well, he says, I'll give you a call. He says, uh, uh, I've got, a, you know, a couple other fellows that are interested or whatever. So mom and dad didn't have an answering machine at the time. So I'd missed his call and uh, they, he wanted me to come to Summersville, West Virginia and play. Dad and I had tickets to go to Frontier Ranch, so we went to Frontier Ranch, and so I, I missed out on that opportunity. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So I think that day, Dad went to Marietta and, and bought an answering machine. <laughs> and, uh, so then he called me in a couple of weeks, and uh, they's going to be playing up at Canal Fulton, Ohio. I think one of Larry E. Falls festivals. And and I swear, Melvin said, uh, "Well, if you can come up there, they said I'd like to talk with you." And I said, "Okay." So Dad and I uh, jumped in these 86 Dodge pickup, and the way we went, it was, I don't know, two or three hours up up north. And uh, I had my mandolin, and I had an old pair of cut-off jeans and a T-shirt, tennis shoes, and 
well, they were supposed to go on stage at like six o'clock and it's quarter till nobody's there. Well, I come <laughs> to find out later, of course, that was, that was normal. Melvin was always running late. And, uh, so about five minutes before showtime, they pull in the bus and, and, uh, Gerald Evans comes off the bus and, and he says, well, go get your, go get your clothes and come on. I said, what clothes? I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, well, you're going to play with us. I said, no, 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 no. I said, Melvin said, we just going to talk. He said, no, you're going to play. Well, I didn't have any clothes with me. All I had, <laughs> like I said, cut off jeans and a t-shirt. Rick May left a suit in the bus and he was about the same size or I was about the same size as him. So I wore his suit and his cowboy hat and a pair of Converse tennis shoes. And that's when I made my debut with the Gomez Brothers. <laughs> So I played two shows with them that night and, uh, and, uh, and then Melvin come around and talk with me and, uh, he said, well, do you, he says, do you want to work? And I said, yeah. And they tried to get me to go with them that night and they were headed, they were leaving there. They had to play in Missouri the next day. And I said, well, I can't go because I have a show with my band tomorrow and I'm not going to leave them high and dry. And, and that, that I think solidified my relationship with Melvin because he says, well, I have to respect you for that. He says, a lot of guys would have just left him high and dry and, and run off. He said, but, uh, he says, I, I admire that about you. And, uh, I thanked him, but it, you know, right's right. So he said, well, he said, uh, here's the directions or he gave me his, uh, phone number and told me where he lived. And he said, be at my house at noon next Thursday. We're leaving for Shenhopple, New York. And I couldn't believe my ears. I said, oh, my goodness, I got hired, and I'm going to make my first trip to New York. I said, this is <laughs> – I mean, I thought I was – I'd made the big time. <laughs> Heck, yeah, man. That's, that's I'm mean, 20, years, 20 years old. Yeah. Other than the Ohio Valley, the only place I'd ever been was Myrtle Beach. <laughs> what year was that? That was in July of 1990. I found a great – Live show. It's actually two live shows on that Take's Bluegrass channel. Oh yeah. Of you playing with the Goins brothers. And it's the oh, uh, with Lacucci Bluegrass oh, Jamboree. Oh yeah. Yeah. Down on Dunellan, Florida. Yeah. I'll tell you what, man, you wear out both those sets. Your tone is huge. <laughs> Yeah, that old buck I that old buck I was barking through, wasn't it? Yeah, and you guys were uh, ripping. I mean, you it was not that was those were some fast paced songs. Yeah, that was one thing about Melvin. He liked to keep it moving. Well <laughs> if if things were going well, he liked to keep it moving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and you have yeah. a great story I read on the bio when I was getting ready to go up to the Monroe camp, which was made me really even more excited to meet you was the fact that you and Melvin um, got to play some, or you would go play songs for Bill Monroe when he was kind of on his deathbed, huh? Oh yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that was uh, emotional to say the least. We were on our way home, I think from Hugo, Oklahoma, we played there every August. And uh, I think this was after yeah, Ray had already retired or was off the road because he'd, he'd had cancer, Ray Goins. And so 
Buddy Griffin was with us, and uh, and uh, John McNeely, and uh, a boy named Dave Baker was filling in on bass that weekend. And Buddy, I think, had actually played banjo with us out there at the festival. But uh, but anyhow, Melvin wanted to stop at the nursing home there and see Bill because he was, you know, he was he was bad, and uh, we was all hoping to get to go see. Him. But uh, James had evidently wanted to restrict the visitors, didn't want to wear his dad out, and I can I can understand that. And but it was it was still disappointing. And this this young woman that worked there, um, her name was Kathy, and she could see the disappointment in her eyes because we were all you know we were standing around kicking the dirt off, stuck and stuff, wanting to see Bill. And, and she says, tell you what, boys, she says, uh, she says, you guys go out to the bus and get your instruments and come back here. Meet me right here. About 10 minutes. So we went and got our instruments, come back here. And there was a court, kind of a courtyard there. And she pointed to this room back in the corner of this courtyard. She says, just kind of play some music and just kind of meander over there towards that window that's open. Wink, wink. And uh, so we went over there and it was Bill's room. And they had opened the window, and we stood outside his window and played, I don't know how long we played, half hour maybe, but just just Monroe stuff. And uh, and they set him up in his bed, and he, uh, he really couldn't talk then. But somebody, uh, when, we, when we kind of wrapped it up, because, again, we didn't want to wear him out, but somebody said that uh, he said to keep playing that bluegrass boys or something to that effect. And like I said, we couldn't hear him because he, he, he was just able to mumble or whisper But man. It was just so, I remember we did uh, uh, rawhide walking in Jerusalem. I think on my way back to the old home. I just, I don't remember it because it was just, I don't know. I think the word they use a lot is surreal. <laughs> it's probably the first time I've ever used that word in my life, but that's, <laughs> I don't know what else you need to describe it because it was just, it was, uh, I, I felt like that, I only felt like that one other time in my life and it was just so weird. I mean, I mean we were honored to do it, but we were, uh, we hated that it had to be under those circumstances, you know, because it wasn't too long till he was not there. I mean, just another month. What a beautiful memory, though, to have. Oh, yeah. 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 It's uh, Tom Ewan called me about that when he was writing his book, and uh, he put a little blurb in there about that. But it was just, uh, you know, to not that it means anything to anybody else, but to know that you were one of the last people that Bill heard play music, you know, me and, and of course, Melvin and John McNeely and Dave Baker and Buddy Griffin. It was, it was, I don't know, I guess a, a, a personal point of pride, I guess, but again, it probably didn't mean anything to anybody else, but it was special for me and, and us. Oh man, no way. I just, I just, I appreciate you sharing this story. It's yeah. so touching. <laughs> you yeah. know, wow. Yeah. The only other time I felt like that was, uh, after Dempsey Young died, I went down and filled in with the Lost and Found. 
and uh, that was another one of those experiences where I was honored to do it, but just hated like all the world that it, I had to do it. Man, Dempsey Young, I just forget like what a great player he was and what cool <laughs> licks he had, man. He had, he had a definite style. Monroe was my favorite. I mean, but, but, but I studied Dempsey Young almost as much as I studied Monroe. And I know that's probably that's that's opposite ends of the spectrum, but uh, he was just an incredible tone smith and just so uh, uh, <laughs> he, he always because I'd steal his licks as soon as he come up with them. And he said, well, "I'm glad you're doing that, John, because you keep stealing them. That means I got to keep coming up with more." <laughs> <laughs> But I, I, I miss sitting and talking with him and, and, and picking with him. And I remember one time I got in a rut. We were playing out at Bass Mountain in North Carolina, and I, I was just in a kind of a, a musical depression. And I said, man, it just seems like everything I play sounds the same. And he said, well, it might. He says, I'll tell you one way to quit that. He said, play the melody. <laughs> hey, that's a novel concert. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> what do you what do you think caused the musical slump for for you you know you're, you're you're playing a lot with you know these killer bands you know what what was it for you do you think that caused that i just uh trying to innovate uh, and and trying to you know i'd learn a new lick so i tried to fit it in every song <laughs> 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 and then so when you learn 13 licks you try to put all 13 of them in every song and then so you end up playing everything and it sounds alike and, and you lose track of the melody and you're more worried about uh, a hot lick than you are playing a song and so i got to where i tried to and and dempsey you know like i said what he said made sense and it helped me out but i it seemed to me that when I would get to that, I, I would reach, I would advance, and then I would kind of plateau, and I would hang there for a while. But it, it seemed like every time that happened, then I would, I would start ascending again. Not, and again, I'm not trying to sound self-aggrandizing, but I mean, I mean, it, it's obvious. I can play better now than I could day one. Okay, everybody can. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, right. you know, hopefully we're, we're increasing in, in ability and, and, and everything. So, but I would get so far and then I would kind of level off for a while and I would just kind of hang there and then, and then I'd get bored with what I was doing. So then I'd, then I'd take another step up, you know, and I keep going. And, 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 and I think I still do that today, son, but it's, it's harder to discern because I don't play as much, but, uh, uh, but yeah, I think everybody deals with that. But yeah, when all else when, when all else fails, play the melody. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the best part is like the advice to how to get out of that, you know. And again, like you're playing, you said you don't play nearly as much as you used to. But I'll tell you what, uh, you inspired me to uh, to work harder after hearing you play, especially in that style of oh. music. I mean, I went out and bought some of those Bear Family box sets, which aren't cheap. Oh. <laughs> I was like, all right, yeah. I, gotta, I gotta take another step at this. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I got all the Bills box sets, and uh, and I got both the Osbournes. I wish they'd do a an, a CMH release of theirs, but anyhow. But yeah, I got the. In fact, I bought a Jeep uh, Grand Cherokee, and it's got a uh, it's got a port in it for an SD card, which I didn't even know they were putting them in cars now. So I've got I've got all those Bill Monroe songs on SD card, and it, it stays in my Jeep, and it's 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 on when I'm in the vehicle. That's usually what's on. Man, that's who. Who are some other guys besides like Dempsey Young, Bobby, and and Bill that you? Any people like contemporary people that people might be surprised by? Because you know, teaching uh, the style that you were teaching at the Monroe camp. I mean, it's obvious you put a lot of time in studying Bill. Yeah. Well, I listened when I was started playing Marilyn and, and getting into the Bill Monroe thing. I listened to a lot of Bill, and then I discovered the Johnson Mountain Boys. So I listened. I was pretty heavy into Dave McLaughlin there for about a year. And then, and it is so weird because I, I, I didn't know who Mike Compton was then. And, uh, and I had heard one song of the Nashville Bluegrass Band, and it didn't grab a hold of me for whatever reason. And so I just kind of, you know, I just, I just stuck with Monroe and, and, and Dave McLaughlin. And then somebody said, hey, has, uh, you heard the Nashville Bluegrass Band? I said, yeah, I heard one of their songs. And then they said, man, you need to listen to that mandolin player more. So I, I don't know. We had a, a PBS station that played bluegrass for four hours on Sunday afternoons. And uh, somebody was on there and they played a couple cuts. I think Baby Blue Eyes from the, the first edition of the Nashville Bluegrass Band. And I'm thinking, whoa, I said, that, 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 there's pretty Monroe. <laughs> and then a little bit later, they played another song and, and I said, whoa, wait a minute. So then, uh, I uh, I discovered Mike Compton. It's like wow, <laughs> where <laughs> yeah. been, or where have I been, really? So then it wasn't too long till that uh, Peter Owen album came out that had the Nashville Bluegrass Band on it. New Moon Rising, I think, was the name of the album. And uh, man, Compton just blew me away. And uh, and there was a Peter Owen album, uh, First Whipperwill, that had Sam Bush playing Monroe style. That was pretty good, and 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 those uh, McLaughlin and, uh, and and Sam Bush. I mean, they're 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 great pickers and all, but Compton really captured. Even when he didn't play Bill's breaks note for note, which he seldom does on a on a on a recording, he can. <laughs> but but even though he didn't play it exactly the way Bill played it, he captured the essence of Monroe better than anybody I've ever heard. And I, I mean, and I'm not the expert of, by any stretch of the word, but, but I've listened to a lot of them. And when I hear Compton, I can hear, I hear the essence. I, I hear, I think what Bill, I, in other words, I think Bill would give a hearty approval because it's just that it's not just the notes. It's not that mechanical sound. It's not, it's not that, 82nd street ramblers it's not the slick city it's it's that 
it's that edge. And I've even heard people have the audacity to say, well, Compton's sloppy. They're not listening. That's what I say to people <laughs> who say that about Monroe. Like, uh, yeah, they're I, not they're not listening. Yeah. Mike uses a good word, intention. Um, and I think that probably really sums up a lot of yeah. how he nails it, man. When I ask him about that, like slick stuff, that slippy slidey stuff that he does so well. And he's oh. like, it's, uh, it's 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 about the intention. And, and I think that's probably why he sounds so much like he sounds is that intention he puts into the playing. It's it's more than just technique, you know. And and the thing that I remember Mike saying too was this: he described Bill as a painter, like you know, it was an impressionistic approach. A lot of times, because people say, "Well, Bill didn't always play the melody." Everybody else in his band had to, but he didn't. And I said, "Well, Bill was number one. Bill was the boss." Secondly, <laughs> <laughs> secondly, Bill, he, yeah, he played the melody, but he he colored it, and he you know he flavored it a lot. And, and it was the sound, he was going after a sound he wanted, of course. And again, Bill wanted to be a fiddle player. So, you know, he could play these, he would play these slurs and slides and stuff. And, you know, he was, that's some of that stuff's kind of hard to, to emulate on a mandolin. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and some of the bow, you know, some of the bowing is just tricky as all get out uh, to, to mimic with a pick. It's... And not, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Absolutely. You know what always, always impressed me about Monroe, too, is um, his ability sometimes. I mean, like you said, he is the boss, you know, his name's on the bus. Bluegrass boys could be anybody, you know. That's right. But, um, <laughs> you know, his ability to step out of the way sometimes, too, and be like, you know, sometimes maybe the mandolin isn't even going to take a big break in a in a song. It might be, you know multiple fiddles and i just think you know i think that says a lot about a musician and the confidence to be like you know what it's going to make this song better and it's not me so i think i've noticed i think i've noticed in those old live recordings that uh when baker was in the band bill conspicuously took fewer breaks <laughs> right yeah you know and just you play to your strengths even and he you know obviously he was a killer player but you know oh, it, yeah. it takes a big person to uh to you know there's not a lot of people who's name is the band who would right. play less play less than anybody else on tunes a lot of times i don't think you know but he you know he orchestrated it i mean people say well if it hadn't been for flat and scrubs bill monroe would have never been a household name well who put them who got them together exactly who who had that vision you know there were better fiddle players than bob wills but look what a band that he assembled and the sound that he assembled oh man absolutely <laughs> When you um your double your double stops in tremolo, yeah. just I mean maybe some of the sweetest sounding ones I've ever heard in person in my life. Well, I'm not exaggerating. Like I mean, you were just drawing me out of that room <laughs> every time. <laughs> and um, so what is your what's your approach? Do you do you play up the neck? Do you you know? Let's talk a little bit about how you approach double stops in tremolo. Uh well, it just depends on the sound. Um, I try to. I, I got this thing in the back of my mind where I'm trying to I'm trying to make the mountain say the words of, of a vocal tune, obviously. Um, so I try to uh, I, I try to think of a mandolin as a singer, and so I try to uh, I try to make it sing. And so if it's a if it's a 
pretty song that requires uh, kind of a pretty touch, I'll, I'll move up up the fingerboard some. Um, and then if it's if it, you know, like Little Girl in the Dreadful Snake, if you want to do some tremolo, I, I get closer to the bridge because I think it I think it warrants uh, that harder edge sound. And then, and then Bill sometimes he would he would totally throw a wrench in my uh, my thinking because I, I've I thought well he's gonna go for that hard edge here and then but but he'll move up the neck and uh, you know he'll move away from the bridge but he'll play a selection of notes like he would normally play on the bridge and, and it just <laughs> I could never figure out what he was gonna do <laughs> but the tremolo I always uh, I guess I credit tremolo a lot to because i i listened to jimmy goodrow a lot early on and jimmy had good tremolo and uh and i there was a i had a i didn't have too many contemporary albums but there was a, a short-lived band called spectrum that he and uh i think bela fleck and uh i think mark schatz was in it and i forget the guitar part it might have been glenn lost but Jimmy played some beautiful tremolo in that. And then the stuff he did with Crow when Whitley was with him and stuff. So I, I listened to him a lot for tremolo. And, uh, and of course, some of that early gentleman stuff that he was on. But then uh, I kind of had to change it a little bit when I to got to listening to Bill. And uh, and I noticed that, that Bill's tremolo was not always just that hard, fast tremolo, but it was more like that... Uh, Da 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 da. Uh, I don't even know how to. I don't know the terms. I'm not a musicologist. Oh yeah, so no I, worries. I can't give you the right terms, <laughs> but uh, like when, like what Compton did on Baby Blue Eyes with the Nashville Bluegrass Band. But uh, I find myself doing that a lot more often than uh, my wife says because I'm getting older and I'm slowing down. But <laughs> it's not necessarily easier. <laughs> it, 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 it's more rhythmic. But uh, And so I've been trying to uh, – that's one thing that Mike's tried to, tried to plant in my head to think more rhythmically when I'm playing solos and uh, instead of just playing – one note after another and uh that's something i've been working on for several years and i didn't even know what i was i didn't even know what it was called or whatever but it was something i noticed i mean like some of bill's playing you can hear even when he's playing like uh arpeggios or something you can almost hear a bow shuffle in it the way he's the way he's playing it and that's what i want to get and that's where that's where mike excels <laughs> yeah man i'll tell you i love slowing down some of that Monroe stuff because when you slow down some of that tremolo 
yeah. you can hear that feel like you're like, oh man, I'm, I'm, I was playing it nowhere near that. And that's oh, yeah. crazy. Yeah. I've learned, I've learned several of his songs many times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was, uh, I taught Brown County breakdown one year and I was using the, uh, the cut off of the uh, Kenny Baker album. And, uh, and when you listen to it, and that first and the A part when Bill starts it where it's doing the where it has the diamonds, dun dun, and Bill he he it's it's tremolo but Bill is putting you can hear him putting the emphasis on the upstroke. Until he gets up to the E string, and then it switches. Now, it again, did Bill lay in bed one night thinking, okay, I'm going to put the emphasis on the upstroke until I get to that part, and then I'm going <laughs> to... No, that's just what he felt, and that's what he heard, and that's the way he played it. And I didn't really notice it up to full speed until I slowed it down, and then I, I picked it up. And then when I go back and listen to it at full speed, then I can hear it. But it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's so weird how that is. So, uh, I tell Mike all the time, I said, I got a knack for overlooking the obvious. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you, I'm glad to hear you say it. Cause I do the same thing too. You know what I mean? It's like that. Oh, allu- it's like an illusion. You think, yeah. you think one thing and then all of a sudden you go back and I, I can't tell you how many songs I play now with the, the, the band I play in or the duo I play in where I'll hear the real version that I thought I learned, <laughs> you know, yeah. like a year later, I'm like, whoa, <laughs> yeah. nothing like it. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think people get wrong when they try to learn some of the Monroe stuff that you've learned maybe in some of these camps? Well, one thing, they play too hard. And they try to play too fast. Um, they mistake, they mistake tone for volume and drive for speed <laughs> and uh and a lot of times they think bill's playing a clam and so they say well i'm gonna i'm gonna straighten that up and play it right oh wait a minute you mean the guy that wrote the song played it wrong <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's like tennessee blues that instrumental they recorded back with uh, I think back was that was back with Cleo Davis even. Nobody plays it right, except Mike that I've heard, because they all so-called straighten it out. They make it a regular. I don't know if it's what they call twelve bar or whatever, but they, you know, I learned it from the Skaggs and Rice CD. I mean, Skaggs played it tonally; it was great, but the chord changes were wrong. <laughs> if you go back and listen to Bill, uh, there was a version, there was a, I think it was at IBMA one year, Mike and David Peterson sat down and played that thing. And, and, and Mike said, we're going to play 
Tennessee Blues, and the first thing Peterson done was took his capo off and grabbed that big A chord, and and they played it. They played it the way it goes. <laughs> and uh, but everybody says, well, we're going to straighten out these quirky timings that, that Bill put on. That, you mean the guy that wrote it didn't play his own song right? <laughs> right, right. And I'm thinking uh, that's that's pretty bold. <laughs> Who didn't, you know, back in those days, if there was a little clam in there, they didn't stop and, and start over. If it was, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, Earl's, you know, he, he missed a lick on uh, rolling in my sweet baby's arm. <laughs> I know that's almost sacrilege. And, and, and uh, I remember Sonny saying that, uh, that he copied Earl Scruggs every lick up until the moment they recorded, I think it was Earl's breakdown. Earl got balled up on his right hand a little bit there at the beginning. And Sonny said, well, I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to follow him anymore. Cause if, if he's going downhill, he'll take me with him. <laughs> 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 but yeah, so yeah, there was a few clams in there, but a lot of people think uh, uh, that it was, you know, just such a dreadful thing. And, 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 and they, they ridiculed Bill and they think, well, he wasn't a mandolin player. Uh, yeah, he was, he, uh, he did some great stuff. And again, uh, the intent, uh, as uh, you mentioned a moment ago, with, with what he executed and stuff was just, I mean, I don't know how, I don't mean to sound, you know, it's not a pun, but it was powerful. I don't know how else to describe it. <laughs> yeah, it really is indescribable to me. Man, let's real quick, let's talk about that Duff that you got. Um, All right. What, what turned you on to the Duff mandolins? Well, I got introduced to him at Monroe Camp, and uh, got got acquainted with Paul, and he's he's just such a prince of a guy. And uh, we hit it off. I mean, when talking, and I'd you know, I'd play him a little bit, and uh, and I'd played mics, and I, boy, I really liked it. And uh, I uh, there was a couple other guys. Uh, I, I I started paying attention to him. And uh, there was a fella up in uh, uh, either Northern Ohio or Southern Michigan has a has an early duff, and it was it was a hoss. And then there's another fella. That, well, he was at camp, I think, at the Tom Woodley. He's got a killer duff. And I just I started seeing him around, and I started uh, started really paying attention to him. And I liked him, and I thought, well, I'm going to try to find an old used duff, and you know. It was, it was, uh, trolling mandolin cafe in different places and i'd see in a few and and i found a couple i liked and uh finances weren't what i wanted them to be at the time and then uh, some other personal matters happened with my wife and uh that happened to take a lot of <laughs> take a lot of resources <laughs> meaning money <laughs> and so um and i even thought about trying to save up for a gill and uh and which i love the gills too i've played I've, I've played a bunch of them and I suppose if I if I was on the road and, and, and music was still a substantial part of my income I could have justified buying a gill uh, they're, they're a little bit more than the Duffs money <laughs> uh, wise but, uh, and the Duff is more than I ever thought I would probably pay for a mandolin but I just I decided I wanted one and my finances got to where I could uh, I could take out a loan and buy one, and, and I'm sure glad I did. I tell you what, I've 
my wife and I are just getting over COVID for the third time. So I haven't been playing even, I play even less the last couple of last month or so than I normally have, but, uh, I'm loving this thing. And I was, we was all primed for a gig this Friday. And I just got a text this morning that it was canceled because of the impending weather and the frigid temperatures. But, uh, but I love it. It's, uh, Paul did me right. That's for sure. And, uh, I was going to say, I don't think I've ever heard a mandolin that is that new sound so incredible, practically That's right out of the case, man. <laughs> That's what everybody was saying. They said, man, who would have thought this sounded good, that good right out of the box? Yeah, I can't imagine how it sounds now. Just a few months later, you playing it. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, well, in all fairness, he, he, this was in the, uh, July batch. And, uh, so it was actually finished in July and I didn't get it until September, but, um, I don't think it had gotten a lot of mileage. I mean, the, the strings that came on it or the strings that were on it when I got it were the strings that he put on it when he strung it up. So, um, but yeah, he, uh, he did a good job and I had him do a little, uh, a little custom work on it, which he agreed to do for my, for my own personal, uh, <laughs> satisfaction, I guess. And, uh, but Paul just, he was so good to work with. And, uh, he called me and, uh, we talked and he said, well, what do you want? And I said, well, I said, I really like Mike's stuff. And, and I like the way it sounds. I like the way it plays. I like the way the neck feels. And so the neck is on this is a little bigger than my Buckeye. Um, it's a little, it's a little bigger, but it's not, it wasn't, you know, I, I really didn't have any trouble making the transition. The only thing different about this, uh, the biggest thing was, uh, Paul wanted me to promise him that I would leave the pick guard on for at least a month and give it a try, mate. <laughs> so I, I promised him I would. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's still on there. I took it off once to make an, a bridge adjustment, but, uh, um, I'm, I'm getting, getting used to the, to the pit guard being on there. In fact, I think, uh, well, when I get my Buckeye out now, I kind of miss it. Oh, no kidding. Cool. <laughs> it's not that I anchor my fingers on it, but I just got used to it rubbing on my pinky when I'm picking. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's getting a little, it's getting a little class. It's got a few little dings on it now. Got to get them in there. Oh, it's easier yeah. to get them in than, uh. Easier to get that first one out of the way, though, huh? When you first. Oh yeah, yeah. I just, uh, yeah. I, I like to have a little class, but not not too much. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the guy who had mine before me, like I think Mike Compton, said, "Like, what do you scale a fish on this?" <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I don't know, man. <laughs> Sounds like a Mikeism. Yeah. <laughs> what do you uh, What do you string it up and uh, use for picks? Well, right now I'm using a, as far as my pick, I'm using a blue chip TPR 45. And, uh, and I've got some heavier ones that, uh, I actually, this one was actually given to me by a fellow that was endorsing them and, uh, and I lost it. And then, so I couldn't remember <laughs> how thick it was. So I ordered one, uh, that I, like I thought it was, and it was too thick. And then, so I ordered a smaller one and it was still too thick. And then I found this one again. So, but I, but I switched back and forth, but I'm using a 45 right now, the TPR. I like the round edge. I never did use the point. 
I never could. Uh, it was just I, I can't get a good tone with the point. I get it's too tinny sounding. And then string wise, I've been using the uh, the nickel bronze D'Addario medium eleven to forty. I like them. I also like I also like DHS the uh, like the A two seventies. Um. Uh, I get them. I get them pretty handily around here. The the Darius I have to order, but they uh, they're more. They seem to be more durable for for the way I play anyway. I'm a fan of the way you play, buddy. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I sure appreciate that. Do you uh, um, do you do lessons? Do you do online lessons or anything like that? I haven't. Um, I. For a while, back in the mid '90s, when I was on the road, I gave lessons some in the winter. Uh, when it, when the road slowed down, just try to pick up some extra cash, and uh, and and there was you know I had a couple students that uh, that really wanted to learn, and so it was a joy. And I had a couple other students that their parents wanted them to learn, and it was <laughs> miserable. <laughs> so. Uh, I don't give lessons, um, I uh, but I'll help somebody. You know, if, if they're if they're if they're serious, um, I'll you know I'll show them. Somebody walks up and says, "Hey, could you show me how to do this?" And I don't have a problem in the world showing them that. I mean, and that's. Um, I remember years ago, Lauren Price's mom wanted me to give her lessons. And I said, no, I'm not going to give her lessons, but we'll get together and and uh, we'll, we'll work on learning how to play the mandolin. So that's what we did. So but I, lessons don't, nah, I, I don't. She's a, another killer player. Oh, absolutely. Well, I got, um, I, you know, I normally have two more questions, um, but I think we kind of covered, I would ask what you would recommend to work on 10 minutes a day, but I think we kind of covered that a little bit with um, just some of the playing styles and what people get wrong, you know, like playing too hard and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah. and, but you're not a beer drinker, so, uh, <laughs> so, which is all right. I have, I have an alternate question all lined up and, okay. um, and that is, do you have a favorite fiddle tune to play? A favorite fiddle tune to play, or a Monroe tune? Is there one that you just go to every time? Uh, yeah, probably. Uh, golly sakes! I forget the name of it right now. There's so many of them that I never can name. That's just one I've been working on here lately. So that was whatever I'm working on at the time is my favorite. Editing note: It was right, right on. That's kind of like whatever, whatever chapter of the Bible I'm studying is my favorite chapter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that sounded great. And gosh, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this, man. It was a just a 
pleasure talking with you and really just a great conversation. Well, thank you. I enjoyed talking with you too. And I just, uh, I love talking about the music and, uh, and, if, you know, if people, I, and I tell the, the people at Monroe camp, I always give them my email address or tell them to hit me up on Facebook. If they have any questions or they, they want to ask me something or want me to show them something, they can hit me up on Facebook and, and I will get to them. Awesome. That, I, I can, I can attest to that, that you got back to me. <laughs> so, well, man, well, thank you so much for doing this, John. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. I, uh, it kind of surprised me when you invited me, but oh, I'm, man. I'm tickled and I'm, uh, always, always willing to try to help out some way. That's awesome. All right. Thank you so much to John for doing the podcast. Uh, I've got the links below to the Goins brothers records that he played on also links to the tracks that were played. That new thing, the 365 Project, up on my Patreon now. Again, it helps support the podcast, helps keep this going. Hope everybody has a fantastic weekend. Cheers, everybody.